0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Robert Burdary about the new book, Where Futures Converge, Kendall Square and the Making of the Global Innovation Hub, the evolution of the most innovative square mile on the planet, the endless cycles of change and reinvention that created today's Kendall Square. Burdary, who himself has worked in Kendall Square for the past 20 years, tells fascinating stories of great innovators and their innovations that stretch back to centuries. Well, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you so how are you how has your week
1: been uh, it has been great although we're cold up here in New Hampshire I'm, I'm tired of the cold
0: oh boy so no uh, sort of walks outside for, for a very long time now
1: <laughs> well I've been doing walks outside but you know all bundled up and you uh, uh, I'm just looking forward to a day when you could go out in your shorts and t-shirt, but that's, that's what makes uh, summer so enjoyable. It's because it's so different. Yeah, for sure. So can you tell us, what do you do? Well, I'm a, I'm a writer. Uh, I'm a journalist. Um, I guess I'm an entrepreneur too, because I founded my own media company. Uh, but these days, I'm really just a writer.
0: And how did you get interested in journalism?
1: That's a good question. I, I, it somehow I was always interested. I wrote for my high school newspaper. I wrote for my college newspaper. Uh, I decided. I guess I just liked telling stories and and diving in and maybe unraveling complicated things and making them as simple as possible. I went to graduate school in journalism, and I've spent my whole career in, in journalism.
0: And alongside uh, your sort of journey in the journalism realm, so did you have any really supportive colleagues and mentors?
1: Not a single person helped me. I know, (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, all along the way, there there are key people who help you out, and it, it may not be. It could just be with one particular thing, you know, one little problem or one instance that, that, just made something more uh, real, or you know, a little a light bulb went off. Those kinds of things. Um, and for me, I thought I'd be, you know, more of a general. I was a, started out as a newspaper reporter, but just by a quirk of fate, I became more of a magazine person and then um, I got into this whole intersection of science technology and business and that's where I spent a lot of my career and and those are you know key people but also key events that happened during your, your your career
0: And how did the journalism sort of change over time did you notice uh, very big changes in it?
1: I mean, huge changes, especially in what we call journalism. Because when I started in journalism and when I went to graduate school, (laughs) there were the little things called truth uh, and verifying your sources um, that were just drummed into you, checking things, getting two confirmations of every controversial item you would write. Those things are just gone now. and uh, furthermore, you know, a reporter was really secondary to the story and would, was not about putting, building their own brand or anything the way it is now. You know, there was no social media, all those things have changed uh, what journalism is um, in our society. And, and some things maybe for the better, but a lot not, maybe not for the better.
0: What would you say to our younger listeners and maybe early career researchers and uh, students who might consider um, a career in journalism?
1: Well, in journalism sounds, I mean, it's it's um it's a much needed thing in society and professions, um, for sure. It's it's it can be very tough and challenging. It, it, I feel like it's the the professional uh you know but educated version of owning a restaurant or something where it's really tough (laughs) to to make your your way sometimes um but it's you know it's like many things if you're following your passion you'll often do well and it brings you a lot of uh joy and you know a decent living and those kinds of things um and um So if that's where your passion is, I would say definitely follow it, Um, you know, but, you know, try to find key people and advisors who can help you um, navigate what's often a tough road.
0: So your latest book is Where Futures Converge, Candle Square and the Making of a Global Innovation Hub. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it?
1: Well, a lot of these, this comes back to very, you know, specific events uh, that go way back. When I uh, was a reporter in the Time Magazine Bureau in San Francisco in the 1980s, I got a fellowship to MIT for writers who write about science and technology. And that's when I came East and discovered Kendall Square, uh, which is this very unique, very small, uh, not even one square mile next to MIT um, that's known as one of the world's greatest innovation hubs and, and the world's most dense, great innovation hub. And when I came, I didn't know really anything about it when I came and and yet um, in 1986, and but yet pretty much I've spent uh, with with a few years of exception, I've spent the rest of my career right in and around Kendall Square, uh, and uh, this fascinating convergence of of uh, innovation, science, technology, business uh, that is um, addressing some of the world's you know big challenges in health and energy and beyond. Uh, and so it was just a natural. Uh, although very long route to to telling this story.
0: So what was your role there? Were you like a passive observer or were you also contributing?
1: Well, I guess I was both, Um, you know, I was, uh, uh, I mean, I I worked in the square first as a fellow right next to the square at MIT. Uh, Then I had a job at in a technology review magazine, which was based in Kendall Square. So I i guess I'm, I don't know, passive observer, but observer. Uh, and then um, uh, I founded my own company, uh, when I, a media company called Xconomy. And uh, we founded it specifically um, in Kendall Square to be part of that ecosystem. And that what we were writing about was the business of science and technology. Uh, And we felt there was no better place in the world to be than right there in the heart of it. So in that case, uh, we're a participant as well.
0: So you bring this really unique perspective in your book of a real insider (laughs) to the Kendall Square. So let's delve into some of the topics that you cover. And let's start with what exactly is Kendall Square? How do we understand it?
1: Well, I mean, it is this a very small piece of land, I would say, you know, maybe 10 blocks by 10 blocks, or maybe a little bit bigger than that, about a half square mile of uh, real estate that is um, right next to MIT. Um, And uh, it's a place where um, people, it's, it's become this innovation hub where you're mixing entrepreneurs, students, uh, big companies, startups, uh, in biotechnology and energy and computing and artificial intelligence, all these different fields. And, and what I have always been so excited about is not you know, what one field is doing like biology or computing, but what's happening when those two fields come together and the convergence of those fields And that is where some of the most interesting and important innovations arise from. Uh, And so that's what Kendall Square is. It's this very concentrated piece. It's like if you took Silicon Valley, which is much bigger in total mass and, and so forth, and you boiled it down to less than one square mile, that's what Kendall Square is.
0: Interesting. So basically, it's not really unique in its idea, but it really has something that uh, makes it unique in the sense. So what would be its significance?
1: Well, so I think that 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 concentration is what's unique and what's, you know, I've been to innovation areas all over the world. And I know people come to study Kendall Square from all over the world. Uh, there's nothing as compact and dense as Kendall Square. and what. What makes it so, um, I think, special besides that is that because of that compactness, you're often just walking down the street or having a coffee and you're running into amazing people. Uh, and um, some are you know, Nobel laureates, uh, famous inventors, and then others are students or they're a startup entrepreneur and they have an idea uh, and, you're, and you're it just makes it so easy to bounce ideas to 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 find new partners, to find new colleagues, all those things that um, that drive innovation. And so uh, that's that's kind of what makes it most unique.
0: And how did it all begin?
1: Well, um, it began as off uh, almost not, I wouldn't say by accident, but it, it became this natural place between uh, in the way back, we're talking way back in the 1600s and 1700s. Uh, Harvard had been established and Cambridge had been established in around 16, in the early 1600s, maybe 1630. Boston, of course, was a was uh, already established and there was nothing really in between Boston and Harvard Square and, and Harvard. Um, and it was actually very hard to get between the two. And Kendall Square is is that midpoint um, uh, or, or, or it's that intersection, it's that bridge, it's right across the river from Boston it's the, it's the fastest way to get to Harvard. If you could get over that, that piece of the Charles River uh, and then go straight down the coast, you'd be right in Harvard Square. And so it became this natural place for people to first build the bridge and then to kind of set up the little infrastructure, the businesses, the, um, the shipping areas, the transportation centers, those kind of things that connected people. It was this natural connection point. And I think that's what made it, that's what gave it its leg up on so many other areas. Um, it was this natural intersection, this crossroads for people and businesses um, to come together.
0: So was it a case that this place really attracted these kinds of people who were sort of entrepreneurial spirit people, or did it make them once they were, were they
1: were already there? I think I think it's both. It's this, it's this very weird mashup of things. You know, it's um, it, it was it was this natural place for um, if you wanted to be close to Boston, which was a center of commerce. It's, you know, there's lots of money, those kind of things, or workforce but you wanted cheap land to build your company or to put a a laboratory or something like that, that was Kendall Square. So everybody thinks it became this innovation hub because of MIT, but actually MIT didn't get there until 1916 and it was already an innovation hub long before MIT arrived because of this crossroads location that, that one, um, it attracted people. It was a cheap place uh, to build companies, but yet, yet have access to a workforce. But two, um, it begat other things. So once you're in that environment, you know you might be uh, an engineer at a at an early company, but then you see other people like you, and you get your own idea, and it, so it kind of feeds back, and you start your own business feeds back on itself. Uh, And so it became, you know, kind of both a place to attract entrepreneurs, but also a place that spawned new entrepreneurs.
0: So what were some of those early companies that uh, got rise in, in that
1: space? The first, what I would say, world-changing set of innovation that came out of kindle square was a railroad car innovator a young guy named charles davenport who um came up with very key innovations in just how to make railroad cars work better make them quieter make them less uh you know bouncy and jostly um to, he did things like put a center aisle down the middle of a railroad car so that people could easily access both sides of it. He put different doors uh, at the, uh, you know, in different locations to make it easier access. All these things that we think of are so standard. He innovated in the 1830s, 40s, uh, and he became this huge worldwide uh, employer and 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 maker of railroad cars. And he ended up buying up a lot of the land around. Kendall Square as well. Um, so that was one of the very first. Uh, not too long after him, uh, there was a company called Boston Woven Hose, which invented a way to make rubber hoses s- strengthen them without by weaving them together in certain ways. and they became the basis for fire hoses that you see all over the world. Um, and they also innovated in bicycle tires. And they, at one point were, you know, just a world leading company in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, there were r- rubber companies, uh, you know, uh, was something like 10% of all rubber in the United States was being built in Kendall Square. Uh, there were just these amazing, you um, innovations and, and leading companies and that's all by 1900 <laughs> so after that mm-hmm. after that came Polaroid another world-changing uh, it was be- you know company that was just based in Kendall Square the private lab of the founder Edwin land was riding right Kendall Square uh, that's where black and white photography was advanced instant color film all those things and you thought it would never end uh, you know, more recently we had companies like Lotus One Two Three, and you know, the world-leading soft software spreadsheet maker, actually bigger than Microsoft in the early 1900s, in uh, 1990s. And and you thought all these things would would continue forever. They're pretty much all gone now. Um, and uh, and now we have this new era where Kindle Square is the The I don't think it's much of a dispute that it's the the biotech capital of the world, but I think one thing you have to you have to ask in light of history is how long will that continue, and you know can it continue forever? Well, it's a good question.
0: So, how has the space evolved? over time so was there something centralized or was it really organic the way uh, sort of everything was structured
1: it's um it's again I think when you look at innovation zones and how they arise and, and things like that I mean some are very engineered um especially in you know new places like in the states something like research triangle park was a very well thought out plan Kendall Square was not like that it was this mishmash or mashup of some things were very well thought up and, and planned and other things were just completely organic, uh, fluky. Um, and uh, it, it was that convergence, I think that gave it a lot of its soul because it does not, especially traditionally, feel like this, you know, uh, high end professional place where all these successful businesses are. It, it, it traditionally, and maybe it's changing now, um, recently in recent years. But it's a place where startups and really, uh, you know, f- just people hanging on with to their idea and barely making ends meet, kind of things, and and. Uh, until until the 2000s it was there were many undeveloped areas and dirt parking lots and old garages and stuff like that where you could still find people uh starting their companies and so forth um and so it had this kind of organic messy feel that begets a lot of innovation Um, and and it's only in recent years that that's changed that things have just gotten so expensive, it's very hard for the startups, especially, to make their way in Kendall Square anymore.
0: So can you give us a few examples of the companies that are inhabiting this place now?
1: Sure. I mean, you look in the biotech world and uh, the kind of pioneering biotech company in in the, on the eastern United States, was Biotech and uh, Biogen, and it's still there. It's still headquartered right in Kindle Square, right where it, it actually got founded in Europe, but it moved very early in its career to Kindle Square to be near two of its key founders, uh, one from MIT and one from Harvard, and it's stayed there ever since, since so it just had its 40th anniversary. So it's been there an awful long time. Uh, more recently, uh, only about 10 years old, founded and spent its whole life in Kendall Square is Moderna, you know, making of the maker of one of the key vaccines for for COVID. It's right in Kendall Square, um, uh, and so these are homegrown companies that started here and grew to become world leaders. But at the same time, um, you have other leading, especially pharmaceutical companies that have moved major operations, including a worldwide headquarters for R&D, say, like Novartis into Kendall Square. Um, pretty much, I would say it's something like 15 out of 20 of the largest pharmaceutical makers in the world have pretty established major um, scientific centers in, in Kendall Square now. Uh, so. You, you name them, you know, uh, Takeda, uh, Bristol Myers Squibb, um, Merck, you know, just keep naming them, uh, Johnson and Johnson. It just goes on and on. Uh, and that's just the biotech side. What's What's happening also on the on the kind of more information technology side is. There are major labs for pretty much all the world-leading competing companies. Google, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Apple, they're all, uh, Facebook now called Meta, Uh, they're all in Kendall Square as well. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
0: Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So as we spoke about the company, so let's think about uh, more on, on the individual level. So what kind of individuals really emerged from this uh, ecosystem?
1: You know, um, well, it's, it's this mix of, one of the key things when you have an entrepreneurial ecosystem that's successful, you have these, of course, entrepreneurs and people who are always thinking about building companies or Pursuing their ideas. But, but around them, you have all these other highly talented people that might just be great chemists or great biologists or great engineers or great computer scientists. Uh, so you have that mix as well. Um, and then you have this ecosystem around them that are the, the lawyers, the communications people, the accountants. The real estate people, and then the managers, the management expertise. Uh, so it's it's basically that whole range of people who are interested in the business of anything that's scientific or technologic, uh, and um, so you know you have students, you have you know veterans, you have you know people. Who want to be entrepreneurs, but you have others who just want to do uh, their their pursue their profession with the resources you know that 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 are necessary to to, to do it. Um, so it's it's everybody.
0: <laughs> with regards to culture, so what kind of, what kind of people are there? You know, on a daily basis.
1: Well, I mean, it's definitely a highly educated, um, you know, a lot of, you know, people might say, you know, nerds and geeks to some degree, but it's not like that really. I I think here's what I would say about the culture, because I've lived in, I mean, I've only lived in, in big cities like New York, San Francisco, Boston areas. Um, they're all kind of hubs. And I've spent my career in this kind of area of science and technology. But what's what's different, what I would say is different about the culture inside that concentration of people interested in science and technology um, is a very it, it's far less money oriented than it is problem oriented. Um, and you almost, it's it, to some degree, it's the opposite of Silicon Valley. Y- you see people not thinking, how do I make money, but how do I solve an important problem? And, and I don't, I don't say, I'm not saying that isn't happening in Silicon Valley either. There's plenty of people doing that. It's just that the ethos, the, the culture, that's what you really jumps out at you in Kendall Square. That's different. I think it's about the problem, and not what you know the per, the people can get out of it so much.
0: Hmm, interesting. And on another note, then, what about diversity? So, how welcome are like minorities and uh, female inventors?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a it's not a unique challenge to Kendall Square. It's certainly one Kendall Square faces. Um, uh, one of the things I write about in the book, I have a chapter called 40 Missing Companies, and it's uh, about these three women professors at MIT, Sangeeta Bhatia, Susan Hockfield, who's the former president of MIT, and Nancy Hopkins, who's a professor emerita at MIT. And they um, started a group called the Founder, Future Founders Initiative. And, and basically it came upon the realization that when you looked at the data and they did a deep dive into the data and, and I'm part of the volunteer group uh, that works with them, um, they found that women faculty at MIT, and this is just at MIT, um, were founding companies at a much lower rate than their male counterparts. Uh, and there are lots of reasons for this, but they found bottom line is if women faculty founded companies at the same rate as, as their male counterparts, there would be 40 more companies uh, in the Boston area than currently exist. And that's why it's called 40 Missing Companies. And this whole initiative uh, which is now more than two years old and done a lot of really important things. and it's not just women making this up. it's uh, about thirty key people and uh, men and women who feel this is a big problem uh, uh, to uh, um, basically try to address that issue. And it's not just it's not just discrimination. and I don't even think it's very much discrimination because uh, people in Kindle Square are very open to, uh, to women entrepreneurs, um, but there's a hidden kind of discrimination. But there's also just the whole the whole um, system uh, by which you become an entrepreneur has just not been as accessible to women and women faculty, even highly successful women faculty. They don't feel as comfortable in business. They're not included in business discussions as much, and it kind of feeds a big feedback loop. So the idea of the Future Founders Initiative was really to break that. So how do you be get women faculty more familiar with business? How do you give them, um, uh, how do you get over that that hump, so to speak? And so it's a, it's addressing a, a lot of issues like just venture firm, venture capital firms that invite women to be on their scientific advisory board of the company they're founding, say, so that the women become familiar with business practices, then they're much more comfortable and uh, able to come up with their own idea. Um, you know, if they have an idea to start their own company, well, if they've had exposure to how startups work of course they they um, have a much bigger chance of success of starting their own company um, those kind of things so there's um those have been going on it um created uh, new um kind of uh, paid paid um fellowships for women faculty to go into venture firms and work there with their salaries being paid by the venture firms for kind of like a sabbatical. So they can become familiar with business practices, build the connections that they need for their own company ideas, those kinds of things. Um, There's a new prize competition that just will start uh, this year for women faculty at MIT with a $250,000 prize. Um, And there's a series of boot camps that have been put on by men and women to help women faculty learn the, you know, what is involved in starting a company and how you get financing for it, how you build the team that you need, those kinds of things. Uh, And so um, it's just been a a broad addressing of of the challenges that women face in becoming entrepreneurs. Uh, And I think that's gonna make, you know, it's the kind of thing that takes years to really pay off, but it's, it's made tremendous progress in the last few years. I think we're gonna be seeing um, some real fruits of that. Um, so sorry for that. It's a little bit of a long-winded answer, I know, but it's a big problem. And, and then of course, now, then you have people of color um, have the same issues, but they're different too. So it's not exactly the same. So you can't just do a cookie cutter solution. Um, and so what the Future Founders Initiative is doing is they're trying. They're, they're focused on women, but they're trying to make sure um, that this, in, you know, involves a lot of women of color uh, to help them as well. And then they're hoping it points the way to to addressing the broader challenge with minorities. Uh, on on getting access to entrepreneurship and and the resources and so forth, but it's not um, it's not doing that directly at this point.
0: Oh, it's really great that you're addressing these topics. So important. Uh,
1: it, it's 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 just critical, and I think um, you know I, I, I give Sangeeta Bhatia, Susan Hogfield, and Nancy Hopkins just so much credit because. They built this coalition that really makes a difference and it's not like, it's just very cooperative and collegial. It's not saying, hey, you've been bad for not including women. It's not blaming people. It's just saying, we've got challenges in society that we have to address and let's do this. And that's why you've seen just this tremendous outpouring of men and women. Working to address this issue.
0: Exactly. So constructive approach rather than yes. blaming game.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And it's not in anger. It's in. It's almost in joy. I wouldn't say joy per se, but it, It's in. It's in, in this great spirit of camaraderie, com- camaraderie, com- camaraderie uh, that I think um, people are just warming to, and and it's making a, you know, a real difference. I believe.
0: So you've spoken uh, about quite a few positive sides of Kendall Square. So, what would be some main criticisms?
1: Well, I think you still have to say, you know, it's not as open to uh, women and, and people of color as it should be, um, and 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 those are ongoing challenges for all of society in, in many fields. Um, so that uh, and then, but if you step away from the people side, there's the there's the transportation issue, and that's a, been a, long, a pretty big mess for quite a while um, is, is just the subway line that gets in there that goes into Kendall Square is the main one called the red line is beset with you know aging infrastructure, delays and so forth. The roads are just crowded. You, it's very difficult to find a place to park if you were driving in there all those kinds of things, I think it's not unique to Kendall Square, uh, but it's a it's a challenge. Um, so, um, you know, and then the last, I, I, I guess that I would put in the big societal cha- type of challenge that faces Kendall Square is just the housing. I mean, it is a sterile area compared to um, many places. It's really 90 something percent about business and it does not have much of a feel for a neighborhood there there are very few relatively speaking you know places to live right there and and they tend to be high-end condos and luxury apartments that if you're making $200,000 a year you know working in a biotech company that's great but it's not affordable for like a, a lot of families and a lot of Younger people and 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 in the communities that really make up vibrant ecosystems. So I think those things remain challenges. Um, uh, And then you know, as something I mentioned before, just on the startup side, it's very hard now for a startup to afford to be in Kendall Square, Um, and that uh, to the extent startups aren't in there, that's a piece of its kind of history and soul that's missing. Um, and so things are being done on all these fronts to address these problems. And I write about those as well. Um, but they're all, you know, there's no overnight fix for any of these things.
0: So where do you see Kendall Square going next?
1: I really have been struck in writing this book. It, it didn't take me long as I started telling the story, and I try to write this book in a narrative storytelling way, you know, uh, very extensively researched, but told through the eyes of the people and the companies in in a narrative way and and, um, that I hope makes it accessible. But one of the things that just jumped out at me so early on is what we talked about briefly earlier is that nothing lasts forever. So we think biotech is gonna stay dominant forever i i mean you could just i i would bet you it won't <laughs> um now it's hard to imagine how can we how could that possibly be biology um molecular biology the things that bring us uh, covid vaccines and address other diseases how can not how can that not be forever part of human uh society well um it certainly will be. Biology, obviously, will be part of humankind forever. But will it be biotech? Um, and that's what I, I question. Or will the nature of biotech change in some way that we can't fully per- perceive, for instance? Um, but I can start to see, as I talk to people, You know, they can see, and I'm just kind of translating their thoughts and adding a few maybe insights of my own, is that you can see the day when a laboratory, you know, so much of Kindle Square are these big labs now, when a laboratory won't be necessary, the way we think of laboratories today, where instead of creating, you know, a biological organism or doing something like that, you're just coding. You're co- it can be done by computer, you could code a new organism. And you may not you may not need anything more than a computer terminal really, to to do that. And and the manufacturing can be moved far away to cheaper places, you know, um, as manufacturing has always done. You know, when industries grow, they move their manufacturing out to to more affordable places. Well, um, you could see that starting to happen in biology. That makes the future of Kendall Square biotech different um, and or maybe there's a new uh, backlash against drug prices that changes the business model for all these companies and and they have to find new ways to do things you can see all those things happening um, and so I think the future, will some include some answers to those questions and i and i don't know what they are yet and um but then there's new things new convergences coming together too so boy and you see it in kindle square because you can really you can literally walk across the street and get from a computing company to a major biotech or biology company and and all of them whether they're computing companies, they have healthcare arms. And if they're biology companies, they have computing arms. And those fields are coming together at this rapid, rapid rate. And, and things like AI and AI and healthcare and so forth. So you can really see that some new type of futures coming out of convergence of computing and biology, things that trends that have already been well, you know, underway, um, just reaching the some new level that we can't quite imagine yet. Um, so anyway, those are just a few of my thoughts on that front.
0: Do you think work from home will also contribute to easing those uh, pressures on housing and transportation?
1: Um, certainly on transportation. Um, I I I think. You know, I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of my writing was done during the pandemic. Um, and um, I think the, I think it will be closer to the old way in two years than people think, myself. I think the pressures to get back in the office, the pressure, the, the incentive to be around your colleagues and, uh, and the people that are often the sources of new ideas, Will be um, just they're just in innate in people, and so I think I think the ease on all those things won't last that long. I think I think in a very few years we're going to be back to having the transportation and housing crunches that we had before.
0: Interesting. So perhaps this uh, face-to-face uh, and close collaborations so is something that's really fostering this kind of innovation.
1: Absolutely, and so I, you know, and I think. Yeah, you know, maybe you don't go in every day like you did before, I mean, I, you know, but you still want that and, and a lot of people want that. Um, and so I think it, it it is going to, you know, we're gonna get back to it. Oh, one of the people at the Broad Institute, which is a major research center writing Kendall Square, a nonprofit, um, said to me, which I thought was very interesting, you know, so much of the advances to address COVID, whether not just on vaccines, but some of the other treatments and so forth came through from these worldwide collaborations of people um, who were far flung, who weren't even going into their labs, who were at their homes because you know we're all connected with the internet and, and so forth. And, and so, but, but he said, but you know what? they were able to do that collaboration because they knew each other from the past because they'd gone to school together, they'd been working, they've been colleagues together. And it, it was the very, uh, we realized the fruits of having people work together, pers- you know, uh, up close and personal in addressing the pandemic from afar. And if we lose those tight connections that make you trust people on the other side of the planet to to work with you on a project, well, you know, something else will be lost in innovation in the future the next time we have some big problem. And, And so I think people want to be back building those ties, building those networks that enable them to be successful when they're apart as well.
0: That is such a crucial insight into fruitful collaboration, especially that you mentioned trust that you have to build.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So now thinking about the bigger picture, what would be the key implications of having such innovation fostering hubs for our society? And can Kendall Square be taken as an example of how we should construct these
1: places? You know, um, I I mean, it's a... One of the, uh, Another thing that I learned, I went to some history of business conference, I don't know, two decades ago, and there was a professor there who talked about one of the keys to success. You know, uh, America, for a long time, people have come from all over the world to be more innovative like America. You know, you saw this in Asian societies that would send people to America to, be, to learn to think more creatively, to be more american in in that sense um, and in places like kendall square were getting tours economic development tours from groups all over the world trying to emulate learn the secrets of kendall square um, they would come almost weekly um, to try to to glean some things that they could take back to build their own one of the the, the this key insight that i got several decades ago was it's not just that you do this thing, this one thing, it's so much innovation comes from what, um, uh, what this guy called, I forget his name, he was at Johns Hopkins University, he called competing centers of excellence. And you need more than one, you need, so the fact that Kendall Square benefits from both Harvard and MIT, as well as other great universities in the Boston area, like Tufts or Boston University, that, those competing centers of excellence feed into these ecosystems. So you, can't, you need more than one. You can't just have your country's ecosystem. You need to somehow um, foster different arms or different types of ecosystems, whether it's in a, you know, in a country or a region, those kinds of things. Um, so it's a tough one. And then so much of Kendall Square is just by accident. Um, and then other parts have been planned. Can you do it if you just plan it? I don't know the answer, but I do know that if you don't try, you won't succeed. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I have some, some ideas on that front, but you know they're, they're still forming in a lot of ways.
0: And what discoveries along your journey to writing your book where futures converge surprised you the most?
1: Well, I think this, this idea that I mentioned before that Kendall Square was an innovation hub before MIT. But here's another one that, you know, if you look at what Kendall Square is now and, and, and this um, biotech hub and this computer science hub that it is, that's certainly... Hugely influenced by mit's presence right? I mean, you literally walk across the street from from MIT and you're in Kendall Square with you know startups and big companies. I mean it's like an, an amazing place in that regard, but it took MIT, as I mentioned, was moved to Boston, to Kendall square in nineteen sixteen. It really was depending on how you count, 40 or 50 years before it really made a huge impact on Kendall Square. So you you don't get these things overnight just because you have a great university or something like that. You have to have, in one way or another, you have to have a true commitment over the long-term. And that's very hard, you know, you have governments, you have policymakers, these things, they they come up with an idea for now, but then what happens, you know, when they hit their first recession or something like that, they abandon their plan, they shift their plan, well, you can't really do that, you have to be there for the long haul, and that's very tough for places to do, that's another, that was a big, you know, kind of not surprising in a way, but it was still an eye-opener for me,
0: and whilst you were um, working and living there, were there any places that you really liked, like coffee shops? And did you have trees? Can you just sit on a bench, for example?
1: Oh, it wasn't until like I would say 2012, something like that, that they got like a little park right in Candle Square, and and with an ice skating rink for the winter, and then they would in the summer it would be you know a, a little kind of. Half shell for bands to play and people get very small. Um, that kind of green space walk around. It's a big part of future development plans and there's more of it, um, uh, but it's it's always been been lacking. But sure, I mean I had my favorite spot, but it wasn't. I, I it literally wasn't until like 2010 or later that you started getting that you had you know more than a handful of restaurants and and bars to go to. Um, there's no nightclub, you know, um, but there are some, a lot of the restaurants, unfortunately went out of business during COVID and they they haven't come back yet or new new places in those spaces. A few are, you know, it's better than it was, but it's still got a long way just to get back to where it was, which wasn't much of anything. I mean, when, when, when you would walk around Kendall Square after work, you did. You probably had fifteen, you know, restaurants and bars you could go to with your colleagues, have a drink. Those those kind of places were great. But after like nine o'clock, it was dead, and it was dead on the weekends, and and uh, so I think that still remains a problem. But sure, I had I had my favorite places. Um, and and one thing is, you could easily just walk and and meet people for that lunch, for that for that you know beer after work, that kind of thing.
0: Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So, can you tell us what are you currently working on, and what will be your next project?
1: I can't tell you for sure. I mean, uh, where futures converge, my fifth book, and. Um, I love writing books, um, but I also love interacting with people. So uh, I think I will continue to uh, help with the Future Founders initiative to the extent that I can to help um, you know open doors in whatever little way I can contribute uh, for women uh, faculty and so forth. I'm going to try my first fiction writing. Uh, and, um, and then I'm going to I'm going to take a little time. I have, um, my basketball team is, is getting up for a major tournament in May. So I'm training for that. And, uh, and then we'll see after the summer where, where I can go after, <laughs> as far as work.
0: What would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
1: Well, um. If they just Google where futures converge, that'll lead them to the MIT Press site for my book right away. Um, I think that's the best place, and it has some of the, you know, a description of the book and some of the people who've read it and, um, you know, said nice things about it, that kind of thing. Um, And other than that, I keep a very low profile these days. I am off of all social media and, uh, uh, so um, you know, if they have questions for me, the best is to you know write into MIT Press, um, and um, you know I don't even I don't have a personal website up or anything like that.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yes, yeah, pleasure for me. Thank you for having me.